welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 25th of May, 2022. The topic was exposure therapy in childhood anxiety disorders. On the panel, we had Dr. Anna McKinnon, registered clinical psychologist, Dr. Gemma Sapuri, senior research associate and clinical psychologist at the Black Dog Institute. And chairing the session is Dr. Carol Newell. Hi everyone, welcome to Exposure Therapy in Childhood Anxiety Disorders. Welcome to our podcast tonight. Um, and before we get started, we want to give our acknowledgement to country. Um, we want to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first people and traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community. And I want to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and we're committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. Welcome tonight. Just a little reminder to everyone that these podcasts are recorded. So if you're interested in any of our past podcasts, please hop online. I just pop in Expert Insights Black Dog Institute and it should bring it up. Um, and we've got them all on Spotify, SoundCloud. So, you know, do check us out um, online. We're very excited about tonight's podcast. Um, I'm a bit of a nerd and this is, this is one of my areas that I really love, which is childhood anxiety disorders um, and exposure therapy. And I've got my wonderful colleagues tonight, Anna McKinnon and Gemma Sakuri. Um, and we are missing a lift experience um, volunteer tonight. We usually have a lift experience, but um, it's really hard because we're talking about childhood anxiety and exposure therapy. We were so we were kind of ambivalent about how to bring in a lift experience volunteer. Do we have a child? Do we have an adult who've had anxiety disorder? Most of the time I found that um, asking adults their childhood memory, asking children their memory of therapy, they don't remember much usually, even when it works very well. So um, we couldn't find a lived experience volunteer tonight, but hopefully um, we will cover enough to be able to contribute to your knowledge of exposure therapy today. Um, and I want to introduce to you my wonderful uh, panel members today. I've introduced them briefly, but I'm actually going to go around to each of them and get them to introduce themselves and give, give us a little bit of a background in terms of your expertise um, and your work in this area. Let's start with Gemma. Hi, Carol. Thank you for the brief intro. It's great to be here tonight. Um, so I'm a senior research associate and clinical psychologist at the Black Dog Institute at the University of New South Wales. And my research focuses on understanding and treating anxiety disorders in children. So perfect for this podcast. Um, but more specifically, looking at the mechanisms underlying anxiety, what maintains it, and particularly things like cognitive bias, and using this understanding to improve evidence-based care, so things like cognitive behaviour therapy. Um, more recently, I've been working on some projects at the Black Dog Institute um, using technology to increase access to evidence-based care. So we're developing, hopefully, a suite of digital tools to, um, to deliver treatments to children. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, thank you for that, Gemma. And now, Anna, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist and I run a private practice in Edgecliff, Double Bay, called McKinnon Psychology. And a core focus of my clinic involves helping children and their families with anxiety symptoms. 
Um, I was a researcher in a different life. That's where I first met Gemma. I did lots of research studies on childhood anxiety and childhood trauma, but left the field and have been loving being in the clinical world for a number of years now. And I'm Carol Newell, and I'm going to be a moderator today. And just a trivia for all of you, we all were postdoc at the same laboratory. <laughs> so <laughs> we, <were>. we have... <laughs> all at different <laughs> times. <so. laughs> at different <laughs> times. So, and unfortunately, I'm the oldest here. I'm really feeling my age. <laughs> but we are all childhood anxiety nerds and having gone through... And we've researched different things at different times, but we've all been part of actually the same study at some point in time. So that was a really cool thing um, that, that pulled us all together. So let's start with this topic of childhood anxiety disorders. Um, Gemma, how about you tell us a little bit about what it is um, and a, a little bit of that background, you know, why is that so important, the prevalence rate? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, anxiety, as we know, it's a very normal and essential emotion and it kind of runs on a spectrum from normal worry to transient anxiety to more disabling and severe symptoms. And it's essentially a response to real or perceived threat. Um, children with anxiety disorders, however, it, it differs from normative worry, which is actually, normative worry is quite helpful. It can keep us safe from threats and it can motivate us towards a goal. But for children with anxiety disorders, these symptoms are associated with marked distress or avoidance of triggering situations. And that usually leads to substantial disruption in everyday life. So things like missing school or not taking part in um, normal activities. In terms of prevalence rates, there's really only been one large prevalence study in Australia um, that's used a nationally representative sample, um, and that was conducted in 2013 and 14, so pre-COVID. And um, that found that the 12-month prevalence of anxiety disorders in children aged 4 to 11 was around 7%. Um, so it's the most common mental health disorder. Um, it's... Um, uh, the most prevalent compared to depression or oppositional defiance disorder. Um, and post-COVID, we don't have any data to show what the diagnoses are, but, you know, parent reported data um, does suggest that around one in five children are experiencing symptoms indicative of a diagnosis. And obviously this isn't a diagnosed disorder, but we expect that rates are probably a little bit higher now. Um, why I think it's so important um, and why I'm passionate about this area of research is that anxiety is usually um, the gateway, unfortunately, to other mental health concerns. It's highly comorbid with depression, oppositional defiance disorder, and, um, and it also increases the risk of other mental health disorders throughout the lifespan. So um, things like substance abuse, um, suicidal ideation. Um, and obviously depression. And so if we can intervene early, um, we can hopefully change the trajectory of children's lives so they're able to have a more healthy and productive life. And we know that I think the stat is around 50% of um, mental health disorders in adults emerge before the age of 14. And anxiety is the most common one of these. So um, yeah, if we can treat it early, we can um, yeah change the course of children's lives. It's so rare for me to see an adult who comes in for an anxiety um, challenge not to have 
had anxiety in childhood, almost all of them will have reported some onset, like some early emergence, and then they didn't do anything about it. They just kind of hung on. So, you know, that that 50%, I think, is actually, yeah, spot on, maybe even higher potentially, right? Potentially, yeah. And often that that's actually based on retrospective reports. Mm-hmm. So, um, who knows? It could be earlier. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's so rare, Anna, don't you think, when we see an adult and you go, when did this start? And they go, well, just two weeks ago. <laughs> it's always like, you know, I remember in my teens it was really bad, but I just kind of hung on through it all. I remember that when I was in primary school already feeling that way. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. And There are a couple of clients that have presented in that way in kind of in adulthood at a late age, and this is the first time. And it almost makes them really kind of vulnerable because they haven't been able to learn or apply those really important skills that you learn in therapy. Um, so, yeah. So what is the gold standard treatment, Anna, for um, anxiety disorders in childhood? The gold standard treatment is cognitive behaviour therapy, as it is for many different disorders. And really that's a therapy founded on the assumption that our emotions operate on three levels. Um Anxiety operates in the physical feelings of anxiety that we feel in our body. So things like our heart racing, feeling shaky. And the second level is in terms of our thoughts. So in terms of those unhelpful thinking processes that are the cornerstone of anxiety. And the third level is in terms of our actions. And one of the big actions associated with anxiety is avoidance. So really the techniques that we're trying to teach in CBT are techniques to calm down the body, to help children change their thinking processes and to teach them ways to approach situations that they're really fearful of. And with kids, it's critical to be working with the families. And, you know, in fact, a lot of the time I have, we have phone calls to the clinic saying, can you treat my child? You know, my child's got anxiety. They're five years old. I want to bring them in. And really under the age of seven, we'll kind of do a thorough assessment of the parent parent and the child. But a lot of the time we're starting off with empowering the parents with, with skills because we think that the bond between the parent and the child is so strong at that age that it's far more helpful and important to, to work with them initially. And we would be teaching them very, like, just the CBT skills sometimes, isn't it? Like, alongside with a couple of other parent training stuff, we do so much of that in terms of that framework. Yeah, and I think the research shows that parent-led CBT is effective. Absolutely. You know, know, Anna, it's so interesting you say, like, CBT, right? And CBT has gotten, every time I go to a conference, they get a bad rap sometimes when they do this, like, really thorough meta-analysis, right? CBT doesn't work for this, CBT doesn't work for that. But I'm always very confident with childhood anxiety disorder because – I think it's consistently quite effective. It's like sitting at that, you know, people who've done that, the full course, for example, cool kids, we see 80, 60 to 80% of them diagnosed as free at the end of um, cool kids. So it's really kind of nice, right, that we can be quite competent um, in CBT. Yeah, and I think sometimes um, there seems to be an assumption from some therapists that if you're doing CBT, you're not getting to the heart of the problem. You're not going deep enough into childhood and to the parents' kind of um, attachment styles. But I would say that a really skilled CBT therapist is going that deeply into the issues and is really deeply formulating the causes and the factors leading up to where the child is now. 
Okay. So now the component we're really going to focus on, which is part of CBT, is exposure therapy. Um, Anna, can you give us, in a nutshell, I mean, this is now where you got to put on your clinician kind of like role, right? How do you explain? Come on, Anna. Psychoeducation. <laughs> How do you present exposure therapy <laughs> to the general public? How do I like present it as in mm. like How do you explain to a, it? To yeah, a child. Well, actually just explain it to us now as practitioners, right? What is exposure therapy? Uh, well, in exposure therapy, I suppose the therapist is gradually exposing a child to a kind of a feed situation, an event, a bodily sensation, or even an object. Um, so let's take example, for example, a child that's afraid of frogs. Okay. Um, so what you do is you develop a series of steps, um, starting with the least aversive steps and building up to a more aversive steps to, to really expose the child to that fear. So it could start with the child reading the word frog or looking at a picture of a frog. And then they might go to a pet shop and have a look at frogs. And then they might gradually become more and more comfortable in different situations. Now, what's going to happen is that the child's going to experience a wave of anxiety when they first complete a step. So when they first look at the picture, their anxiety is going to peak and come down. And what's really important with exposure is what we call repetition. So the child will repeat looking at that photo for a number of days. And during that time, a process called habituation hopefully occurs and the fear tends starts to reduce. And it's a really lovely technique for kids because instead of flooding or overwhelming a child with their fear and, say, putting a frog in front of them, you know, the child feels a sense of agency and control. So we start by looking at the, uh, reading the words and then looking at the pictures and then they only move up those steps when they're ready. Um, so it's a really nice way for a child to confront their fear and build confidence. Fantastic explanation, Anna. Is there a model that you typically use with um, child clients? I've always used the going up to a party at the top of a building where the restaurant is and how would you get up there? And they love that. Do you have one that you, you use? I always start, and I, even from the first session, I always talk about, I talk about something that's not personal to the child because sometimes if you're going to talk with the child early and it's going to be their core fear, they start to come very elevated. But normally I love using the dog example. And I always kind of talk through like the three parts of anxiety and your thoughts in your in your body and in your actions and just really talk to a child and, and help them think through what would happen if a child who was afraid of dogs just managed to avoid dogs forever. You know, if they never, they every time they saw a dog, they run away for the rest of their life. Would they ever get over their fear? And 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 children get it. They go, no. But what do they have to do? Yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah, go for it, Jim. And the grade, yeah, the grade, I remember always using when I was working clinically, just the graded exposure going into yeah. cold water slowly and just kind of going up gradually. I always use that. Sometimes I use that one <laughs> and I neighbor. said, well, yeah. what would happen if you brought the child in and you just push them in at the deep end when yeah. they're afraid of the pool and to get at that flooding, yeah. you know, and they're like, no, that would be really mean. You would like yeah. Back out. Yeah. Hoping that they don't co-present with oppositional <laughs> defiant disorder. I would push them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I love the externalizing, right? What what would you 
what kind of advice would you give to the other child? Because I have discovered yeah. children like adults love to give advice. They do. <laughs> yeah. It's just I such agree. a position of power to be able to see it from the outside. And they love to come up with their own solutions. Oh, yeah, I love it. Right. And you're like, well, how about you? Yeah. And they're like, oh, no, back to, <laughs> back to me. So, yeah. Gemma, how important is exposure therapy to the treatment outcome for childhood anxiety disorders? Like, is this the active ingredient? Is this like a really important part? Because we've got so many different components to CBT. We, yeah, we have. And I think that's, um, that's where the research is going at the moment. I mean, CBT has been evaluated as this multi-component treatment. And now we're really working at looking at well, what are the key components for therapeutic change? And the short answer is, yes, exposure therapy is the active ingredient of CBT. Um, the longer answer um, is that we probably need some more research to really determine how important it is and what mechanisms it's targeting, apart from um, avoidance. So um, research has shown that the more um, frequent exposure um, that's conducted, particularly in session, has le led to a better improvement in anxiety and functional improvement. Um, and conversely, other cognitive behavior strategies such as mindful breathing or or relaxation and actually negatively um, related to functional improvement less in that the more you do them yeah. the, 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 the less yeah exactly um, there are um, dismantling studies that have been conducted um, comparing exposure with um, standard anxiety management strategies. So things like identifying your negative thoughts or identifying the physical symptoms in your body, relaxation training. And it's shown that exposure therapy has led to larger um, effect sizes. So there's been a bigger change in anxiety um, compared with um, just standard anxiety management strategies. And, and I guess that also has something um, that also leads to ideas around when should we introduce exposure, which we can talk about a little bit later. Um, and then even larger studies, um, there's been uh, a really big trial being conducted by Philip Kendall, who's uh, sort of the, the, the brains behind Coping Cats, which is very similar to Cool Kids in, in, in Australia. Um, and they've actually looked at the trajectory of change of anxiety over the course of a standard CBT treatment. And they found, you know, you typically CBT starts with identification of, 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 of your thoughts and your physical symptoms. And there's been no change in anxiety during that period. And then when cognitive restructuring is added, anxiety outcomes um, or anxiety symptoms reduce. And then when you add exposure on to that, then anxiety symptoms reduce even further. So we know that that behavioral element of CBT is really critical to the treatment success of, of, um, of it definitely matches what yeah, I observe in clinical practice. When we start exposure, there can be just such a big dramatic drop in symptoms over such a short space of time. Like it's amazing really. Mm. And it adds yeah. on to the other components of treatment, Absolutely. even more like, you know, there's additive effect. So given that it's so fabulous, we must all use it. Like, <laughs> what does the research say? This is the whole reason why we came up with this podcast. Because I'd always assumed yeah. that exposure therapy was just used constantly. It's like my go-to. It's not my favorite part. Sometimes I get a bit too keen, Anna. I'm like... Yeah, yeah, the explanation. Let's go do this thing. And I, wait, wait, pull it back because this is so much fun. Like, you know, we can't just jump straight to exposure therapy. But actually some people might argue that you could, right? 
How, what's the rates of clinicians actually using exposure therapy, Gemma? Yeah, I'm, I mean, this is a really hot topic at the moment because, yeah, I was similar to you. I mean, I was trained in exposure therapy is the go-to <laughs> for childhood anxiety. And um, there's a couple of bits of research that have shown that um, around 40% of clinicians are not using exposure despite using CBT. So they're reporting they're using CBT, but actually exposure is not a component of that CBT. Um, and then that was done in the US, but um, recently a study done in Australia um, looked, asked parents and children um, what kind of treatment they had received for their anxiety. And only around 25% of children with anxiety received evidence-based care, meaning CBT. And then we don't need, we don't know, we didn't drill down to like what components of CBT they had, but I imagine it would be even less than that. Um, and so it's a really interesting question about why, why clinicians aren't using exposure. Um, and that's something I think we should, yeah, discuss. I mean, clearly you two both and do. And what do you think? Why, <laughs> what are some of the practical barriers, you think? Why don't we use it as often? Yeah, I think, I think there's definitely some really practical barriers, especially as a clinician in, in private practice. And, you know, in terms of the Medicare rules, you know, often I think longer sessions can be better for exposure, um, especially when what we're trying to achieve is that the the child experiences anxiety when they're confronted with a fear, but then they have time to calm down. Um, often that takes time and longer sessions are needed. You know, often it might involve driving somewhere a long distance. You know, I had lots of access to re access to access to resources when I was working at a university. I remember I did exposure in a flight simulator. I went to a spider lab with a child. But now that I'm out in private practice, it is a little bit more limited. So I think some of those practical barriers, you know, they're not. In, they are reasonable as well and um, it is really difficult I know a lot of clinicians that end up driving those long distances without charging their clients as well so doing lots of free stuff um, which isn't also good as a clinician because we've got to have our professional boundaries in place too yeah and then you when you try and text the dog the dog you got for dog phobia your accountants don't approve of it so you know and spiders and aquariums for snakes I know I know I mean I've resorted a lot of the time to going to the family home and yeah. then saying could you get the, do the dog from your next door neighbor to come over and we'll, we'll use that dog but yeah I mean businesses aren't happy when you say I'm going to bring a, a spider into the clinic or a big yeah. dog yeah Absolutely. Um, so there are definitely practical barriers and you're right. It takes a little bit more work to kind of get it done right. Um, and then trying to squash it in, into like a quite a busy day can be a real challenge. Do you think that there's also like um, barriers around, I've sometimes heard this from clinicians, which is, you know, I am um, worried about the child becoming distressed. We're just like, I want to prepare them with relaxation and cognitive challenging because we don't want to distress the child. But that's actually kind of counterintuitive to exposure therapy, isn't it, Gemma? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, in terms of the re the research, there's there was done a large scoping review looking at what um, clinicians identified as barriers to um, to implementing exposure. And that was the number one barrier was they were clinicians were worried about the impact on 
the relationship, the therapeutic relationship with a child, um, and they were worried about jeopardizing that by in introducing exposure, um, certainly too early, and even um, the fear is that the child will drop out of treatment. Um, and another barrier that was expressed by clinicians is their own anxiety and confidence in implementing um, exposure, which is completely understandable. I remember when I was training, <laughs> um, it wasn't, you know, you knew, you know, the theory, but actually doing it can be um, quite challenging. And I think clinicians also have views. They think, you know, when child is, it seems a bit more resilient, then maybe we'll introduce exposure. But if they don't seem as resilient, then maybe we shouldn't introduce exposure. Um, and the good part about this, knowing this, is that these two things are quite modifiable. Like, we can, um, I think if we highlight the importance of exposure and that it is the active ingredient, and I think if, if, if people have that knowledge, then they're more likely to implement it perhaps. And there just needs to be better training um, and support for clinicians and perhaps even supervision around um, using exposure more as part of their Absolutely. treatment for childhood anxiety. And now I've anxiety. got attendees have put their hands up, but just a little reminder, we can't actually see you, we can't actually speak to you. So if you've got a question, pop it into the Q&A box. Um, and we actually have a couple of questions here that might be the right time to kind of ask. It's another barrier sometimes I have found the parents' own anxiety and their own distress. And we've actually got a question in here that actually we could actually answer together. You know, is there a high genetic predisposition and um, is there a correlation between parental anxiety and the child? Gemma, I know you know this one. <laughs> I know Anna knows this one too. The answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. You guys know this. You can, you can be the researchers. The, the answer is yes, there is a genetic predisposition. I think I think the stats is like 30 to 40% of, of anxiety is explained by some genetic component. Um, and then there's a temperament predisposition. So if the child is more inhibited or shy, they're more likely to develop an anxiety disorder. Um, and yes, if a if a parent is anxious themselves, um, they're more likely to have a child who's anxious or conversely, if a child is anxious, they're more likely to have a parent who has um, an anxiety disorder. And certainly um, that can get in the way of implementing exposure at home. And parents have actually, have actually reported that. So in the, the, the review I was talking about earlier, I think Jenny Hudson and team, they they invited parents to ask them what, what were the barriers to exposure and parents reported that they they found it difficult to, to engage to motivate their child to do exposures but also that their own anxiety was getting in the way and it's really hard to watch your child <laughs> feel distressed especially if you're anxious yourself and especially if you're anxious about the situation that might trigger <laughs> the anxiety in the child because it becomes exposure for well, you I have had cases where like the parent and the child had the same specific phobia, one example being a vomit phobia. But because treatment of, of a vomit phobia in a child really does involve so much like parent implementation of exposure, you know, the conversation does have to be had. Like maybe you need to get you your treatment and then so that you can actually guide your children, your child through this exposure process too. Absolutely right. Um, and sometimes I have found like in terms of managing it, you're right, Gemma, that there's such a barrier. Sometimes you give the, even like a three-step homework, right, that gradual exposure and it doesn't quite get done because mom or dad may be so anxious that they don't even want to drive and it needs to be driven up. 
if the anxiety is low and we're really relaxed, it's not actually exposure. It needs to have that curve downwards, right? Um, that I've sometimes found that it's quite helpful to actually do it in session, like go with them and be there to kind of cheer lead the parent and provide a little bit of that guidance. And I'm thinking to myself, it's kind of like a double whammy. I'm treating the parent's anxiety at the same time as the child's anxiety. We sometimes get the parents to go first because sometimes just watching the parent do the thing is like a step. Um, and the parent has to model that bravery and there's such a sense of achievement um, at the end of those sessions. Yeah, and I think it can really help with parents. I remember um, when we were running some of CBT groups with with children and parents and parents having to do an exposure themselves. And for them, I think also for parents who aren't as anxious, they can actually empathise more with their child about because sometimes they're like, I don't understand what the problem is. They should just go and do it. And so it, it flo floats both ways. Like it can be helpful from an exposure point of view, but also for them to understand how difficult it might be for a child yeah, to face. Yeah, I think that both can situation. really, I don't think either one uh, reduces the effectiveness of exposure when we do it really well Yeah, in terms of being able to implement it. So, mm -hmm. Gemma, the next question is, is there this belief that um, cognitive therapy needs to come first? Because I've always had this, a little bit of that, as I said before, right, sometimes could we jump straight to exposure therapy? And there might be some uh, researchers who would say, yeah, you can actually potentially even bypass cognitive therapy. And we're so, like, I'm quite attached to the full model. Um, is, it, is it possible to skip it or do we have to have CT before the exposure therapy? What do you think? Yeah, so I think it's around 90% of CBT protocols in research studies do anxiety management, CT prior to exposure. Um, and the question is whether that's um, necessary um, or whether exposure can exist as a standalone treatment. Is it helped or hindered by adding anxiety management strategies? And so um, the dismantling study I was talking about earlier compared six sessions of parent-led exposure with six sessions of standard um, anxiety management strategies, and they included things like identifying negative thoughts. I don't actually think they did cognitive restructuring in this particular study. Um, um, and they found, as I said, the exposure led to um, better outcomes, and, um, and these outcomes were maintained um, for longer at three months follow-up. So that study really shows that exposure can work as effectively, if not, and more effectively introduced um, as a standalone. Um, in terms of whether it should come first, we just don't have enough studies looking at how we can optimize exposure within a CBT um, treatment package. We don't know if, you know, if we implement exposure first and then CT, whether that's better than having CT first versus exposure. All we know is that exposure needs to be in there. It's the active ingredient. Um, and, and the ordering is, is really a question for more empirical research. Um, but I will, there is, um, sorry to be going on, but there is a theoretical model. So Anna was talking about the fear habituation model about um, children getting used to the idea of emotion, but um, there is now looking at a different um, theoretical model for why exposure works. And that's called the inhibitory learning model. And the, the idea behind that is that we're replacing these old memories with new memories. So we need to really learn that nothing bad happens. And this has a load of clinical 
implications. So it's not about sort of staying in situations and kind of waiting for your anxiety to drop. It's actually about maximizing what we call expectancy violation. So we really need to, if a child thinks the dog is going to bite them, we need to maximize, we need, the exposure needs to maximize <laughs> the violation yeah. of that exposure so they There's can learn cognitive the dog doesn't it's bite them. It's not just pure behavioral, isn't it? It's the matching up that cognition with the experience. Hundred percent, yeah. And if you, and so if you take that, doing cognitive restructuring, which essentially is trying to um, change their estimation of, of, you know, they're trying to reduce that overestimation of threat and reduce the negative valence and say, no, it's actually going to be fine. It's going to be okay. Is actually doing the opposite. It's actually reducing the expectation expectancy yeah. violation. We need them to experience yeah. it to 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 really. And there's learn so many it. terms for it because so, Anna, yeah. I don't use habituation. I used to work in like that pre-clinical space. One of my experimental studies used to we used to get children afraid of a novel animal and then we extinguish it. So it's exposure yeah. therapy, but I would use the word extinction because that's my ah. background. Habituation, and it's based on the inhibitory model as well. Bit, yeah. But then I think this is a really good question in yes. the Q and A box from Heather which is if elevating anxiety is useful for change, how do we bring the anxiety of the child down once we've elevated it? And I think this is a little bit of troubleshooting where we actually like sometimes exposure therapy is not working because we're not implementing it. Sometimes parents come back and they go, it didn't work. Um, you know, how do we bring it down? And, you know, there are actually different ways of doing this. I would say even one of those things might be, um, did you wait long enough? Like a lot of times I get kids kind of running into it and going, I'm afraid of this, but I'll do it. And then I run out of it. Right. So they're not actually staying in it for long enough for that curve to come down. Any other thoughts with this question, Anna? Like, how think, do we bring it down? <laughs> well, I think it's important for parents to understand that it, it's okay if it takes some time for it to come down, that if, if your child is experiencing anxiety in the step, they're doing it properly. And that's what I'm really telling the child. You're being so brave. You're doing this properly. And, you, you know, they're, they're actually experiencing it. We want them to feel that physical feeling of anxiety and then, calm down from it and learn that it will calm down now obviously sometimes there are like times where the child is really kind of highly overwhelmed or like and I know I know sometimes in session you know I might be doing exposure that the child needs to leave the session and you know um they're highly elevated highly upset um and I always want them to to leave the room hopefully and that's why I like the longer session with their anxiety having kind of reduced so you know you might you might do things like some some calm breathing and things like that at the end I know that some researchers would frown at that but um you know that's a practicality that that you do face but you know the, the basic bodily sorts of calming techniques can be helpful in those situations but I would say that would be a last result so we just want them to sit the feeling and experience it and learn it's not harmful it's okay Gemma did you have something to add to that no I was I was just I was reflecting I think it's it's also a balancing act about that that hierarchy that's those steps like you know are you going too far up the hierarchy too quickly or maybe it's like bringing it down a step and and so you don't want to have it like the anxiety to be too little because there's not going to be much change but equally you don't want it to be so overwhelming and high that it's it's not able to be brought down it becomes overwhelming it makes for the me child. think of the cool so, yeah. section troubleshooting step letters <laughs> right, which is 
are your steps too far apart, right? So have you started with step two and it's two out of 10 and then you've jumped straight to seven out of 10 for the next step, right? So it's almost like having a look, is there an intermediate step in between so that you can bring it down, um, the timing of it as well. And that's why, Anna, I think this is one mm -hmm. of the barriers, isn't it? You sometimes need a really long session to wait Absolutely. until it comes down. And, you know, you can do as a therapist and as parents, you can do all the preparing you know, in the world and you can think, oh, I've got the perfect step. We're starting at the right level. Um, you know, they're looking at a photo. It's going to be okay. And the child might produce, you know, have a reaction that you totally didn't predict would happen kind of thing. And um, I think that's just where that that strong relationship, the therapeutic relationship, the, the relationship between the parent and child is there. But I think you can even use those moments, even those really tough moments can be a positive learning. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, go sorry. for it, Anna. Sorry. No, you go. <laughs> it's actually like Gary. Gary's my colleague. He's got a great question here. How do you manage when exposure goes wrong and, you know, the dog actually bites? And this means, Gary, I, I could have a go at this one, which is prepare your step letters really well. You want a sure bet on that first step, right? That first step has got to be really successful. Anna, you do a lot of prep with the dog, right? You like check whether it's a friendly dog, yeah? Um, it's so important that you prep for these things and kind of like ask questions. I sometimes think clinicians don't probe enough like for those early steps. Like what actually are you going to do? How many people are in the classroom? Is this a nice teacher when you're about to present, right? And you're kind of like getting that detail so that you can be sure that those first steps are really successful. Any thoughts on Gary's question? I think just also the dog safety stuff with exposure with dogs is really important too. So sometimes just doing all that safety preparatory work um, is important initially. Yeah, and I think I think even going, and less over the dog because that's actually like it's a serious, it's a real threat, but like certainly when you're doing exposure work and you're involving schools and there's other children involved and there's lots of factors that you can't control, I think preparing the child for the consequences. So it's kind of that, you know, that questioning about, well, what is the worst that can happen? And is it something you're able to cope with? Um, and talking specifically around social, social anxiety here. But yeah, then I think it's not a question of just creating a step that is like, there's a lot of work that goes into that um, and creating the, you know, the right level of steps. Anonymous, I, I like this question because this kind of links back to some of the research um, that I'm familiar with. Interestingly, I sometimes see anxiety that result in school refusal look as though it's been extinguished, uh, for want of a better word. Um, and then, um, then you have that term of school year with no problems, and then it pops up again and sometimes can be worse. I'm wondering whether you can comment on this. Oh, gosh, Anna, that never happens. Anxiety <laughs> popping up after a long, wonderful, relaxing school holiday, right? That's like <laughs> that's like so common in clinical setting. I think this is a difficult question to answer because I mean the the school avoidance. I think that um, you know it's such a broad term, but there's so many different fears that can feed into that. You know, fear of school. Is it that they're worried about being rejected from the friends? Are they worried about panicking at school? Is it their grades that are feeding into that? Like it, it's such a complex um, issue that I you know I think that you almost you need to do a lot of reformulation as they go back and just really carefully ask them about the different domains in their life and how it's been impacted yeah Gemma yeah I was gonna turn to you <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and yeah, sorry, so I was just going to say, yeah, no, I was just going to say, I read a very um, academic tweet the other day, but yeah, that's my source of, of research. But no, um, they were talking about school refusal in particular, and and it, and it comes back to what is the source of the child's fear? Are you putting a child into a situation um, which is not irrational? Their fear is not irras irrational, for want of a better word, or they're not overestimating the threat. Maybe there are real threats at school. Maybe they're getting bullied. or And as, as Anna said, there's so many issues around school refusal. Maybe there's a teacher who isn't isn't treating them particularly well. And so telling them repeatedly to go into this situation may not actually be helpful. And I think, so I think monitoring, you know, if anxiety is not going down or, or there isn't change or it's popping back up time and time again, then it's, it may be about problem solving what the issues are at school before kind of just going into default exposure and just go back to school. I mean, I don't like the, I don't like the term school refusal because I think it kind of yeah. is almost denoting that the child's exhibiting this defiance when, I think a lot of the time there are really entrenched fears in there yeah. and then, yeah school anxiety maybe right might be I try really and say yeah I say school anxiety and avoidance you know mm -hmm. yeah I, I also want to have a go at this because this used to be one of my favorite topic which is that actually if you use the inhibitory model um, for anxiety right you have to remember that um, the fear memory never disappears you don't unlearn it so sometimes it is unmasked um, after extinction um, with the change of context sometimes you get things like spontaneous recovery right so over time it can sometimes pop back up again um, especially when there's a bit of a stress or it's been very relaxing and the transition to the context back into school just kind of brings it back up because you've all got all the cues that used to trigger anxiety right and we know that that memory is really powerful and sometimes I kind of warn parents ahead of time like during holidays right it can pop back up and we don't need to get despondent about that or say that it didn't work, is that we reintroduce some of the strategies, could be some, and then also search clinically in terms of what you guys were saying, right? What is happening at school? Like actually look into it a little bit more and find out what's going on um, in that clinical space. But it's actually really, I think really common for like anxiety to fluctuate over time. Um, and that, that you, if you've done it once before, if you can actually treat it and manage it, it means that it can be can be addressed again and addressed successfully. Yeah, it's management, isn't it? It becomes managed, like you have to manage the anxiety a lot of the time, yeah. So what uh, I've got this question as well that we've got on. I don't know if we've actually like addressed it. How do we implement exposure therapy in schools now that we're on a school track? Anna? Well, <laughs> I don't think we can expect too much of teachers in terms of it. But, I mean, the common things that I've done is I often try and link in with the teacher. I will show them a, the step letter. It's really important if the issue is occurring at school. So things like social anxiety, like putting your hand up in class, giving a presentation um, with the child's permission, like discreetly sharing that, and, and the teacher might reward the child um, for noticing that they're like putting their hand up, asking questions and things like that. Yeah. And just like also, I think just reviewing the plan for what happens if the child does become really elevated, struggling to regulate their emotions. What is the plan? I have a lot of clients at the moment that hide in the toilets, you know, at the moment when they're really anxious and it's, that's just not appropriate. We need to have better plans in place. So I think um, that's something really important that I try and work with the schools on um, to address. 
Absolutely. What do you think of these chill out zones and exam provisions, Anna? I think I will have hit a nerve here. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think that it's really important that there is a chill out zone at a school. I think that when children are struggling to regulate their feelings, when they're feeling really panicked and elevated, often they do just need a break. They need to implement some form of calming down tool. But, um, but I think that there can be issues with these spaces. Um, you know, sometimes I do have clients that tend to start spending a lot of time in the space and, you know, it might be a subject that they don't like so much and they're like, oh, I'll just go into the, into the zone. And I, you know, and then that can create a real problem. So I think it's so important to have that space, but it needs to be monitored and we need to make sure that children are using it when they need to and that there are some limits in terms of that use as well. So last question in our Q&A, do you think the way schools manage school anxiety by providing exit cars, they're kind of like chill out rooms in a way, right, and reduce contact hours can be more damaging? I think schools need to have these cards, um, but I think that in some situations they can be damaging. But just as an example, you know, I have a, I see some clients that have um, ASD and have anxiety. And for a child with ASD, it's very comforting for them to know that they have a quick exit strategy and that they have a place that they can go when they're starting to dysregulate and they might be starting to stim and things like that. So I think there are definitely situations when, you know, kids need those spaces, but we just need to monitor them. Yeah. And hopefully that answers your question as well, Anne-Marie, in terms of whether it's okay for a child to leave and come down outside is all those provisions that Anna's talking about and keeping an eye on those caveats, right, and making sure that it doesn't become damaging. Yeah. And I think I think also just to add to that, as long as it's on the path to more approach type behaviours, so it's not explicit avoidance, it's like, are we working towards something or the feared outcome? And so is this helpful in that? in that trajectory or is it just you know we're just avoiding and doing more of the same and so yeah it's just about that that stepped approach Um, I love it because I once had a fantastic supervisor in childhood anxiety and he say sometimes we have to put these safety measures in place to remember that we have to dismantle it later on yeah (laughs) it's like put it in place but remember to dismantle later on I think that's an important point I mean there are some kids with really chronic issues and and that might need that space for the whole of their schooling but a lot of the time yeah we're looking to implement that scaffold and then to take it away you know once their anxiety is improving yeah and I think the principle you know we talk about you know practitioners aren't using exposure but it's also um educating educators about the importance of exposure and what the goal is and that really good psychoed. and I think you know, talking also about CBT as this multi-treatment component. People know CBT works, but you think you've got these suite of skills that you can pick and choose from. And so you think, oh, well, if I do a bit of cognitive restructuring, I'm doing CBT and maybe I don't need to do exposure. When we've just talked about it, it's the active ingredient. So almost all these other strategies that are coming into play are crowding out exposure. And I know, and I can attest to that because when I was working clinically, I knew I'd been taught well and exposure was 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 the active ingredient but you st- these other therapeutic techniques come into play and you and you know other issues crop up in your crisis management and you know you've done 10 of your medicare sessions and you haven't introduced exposure yet and and so that's also an argument about well maybe we need to start it earlier so you can do enough of a dose of exposure to have mm. um 
outcomes. And some movement, right. And maybe those 10 sessions are actually not getting any movement when exposure could start to move it. And then you can actually see like the other stuff also working. We have a lot of questions in the Q&A, but most of them, if I were to categorize it, is sometimes like almost identifying the fear that you are going to do exposure to, right? We've got questions about generalized anxiety and sleep. And so how do you identify targets for exposure? And I think this relates to, I remember being an early um, career psychologist, sometimes I'm thinking, what is the fear I'm trying to target? Like when it's simple, like specific phobia, you can go, oh yeah, you know, it's the dog, right? But what if it's not a tangible thing sometimes? Sometimes it's fear about fear. Sometimes it's like a generalized worry. How would you address this? What do you think? How, what's the tip we can give practitioners in terms of identifying and targeting a goal in exposure therapy? So, I, you know, I just, I think you're coming back to all of the, you know, those those techniques that you've learned in your training. Um, I think in terms of it, it's always important to clarify the the child goals and the and the parent goals. And I think initially, definitely when you're working with with children, you know, by far and like we want to follow the child's lead in terms of giving them agency and the fears that they're tar- they're targeting. You know, in terms of it, you know, with a generalized worry. You know, um, we, you might be just, you're, you're trying to f- find out, you know, a core theme. So like asking, the ch- figuring out whether for a child it's like an intolerance to uncertainty, you know, um, the nature of a separation fear. You're, you're trying to, to ungroup a, a theme. So it might not be something really specific like a dog. It could be that changes in routine are hard, yeah. you know. And so we yeah. change up routines. Um, being late is hard. So we might have to have exposure to being a little bit late for class. Um, Perfectionism yeah, is a common yeah, one in the generalized yeah, worry, doing the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't pack, un- yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I didn't yeah. pack my gym bag properly. Well, then maybe tonight yeah. we don't pack it properly. We're exposing you to not overpacking tonight and then see what happens, right? So it's almost like take a step back and, and look at what's kind of like the behavior, what's the avoidance or the overdoing the safety behaviors that they're doing and then maybe have a go at slowly dismantling some of that. Because I think a lot of yeah, a lot of kids it is an intolerance to uncertainty. Mm. So the like mess is about an uncertainty, and it's yeah, lots of broad themes that can be unpacked. Yeah, so it's creating that uncertainty essentially, yeah. <laughs> and and it's it's about and it's about coping. It's about giving children the belief that they can cope mm. with this uncertain yeah. outcome and. Um, I like that in terms of that summary, right? Like I I guess one of the ways I'm thinking about that question, that generalized anxiety is that sometimes we get kids who have to know like where are we going and then we can't go if I don't know where this place is or you've changed routines on me. So maybe an exposure would be we kind of warn them, mom's going to change things up last minute, right? And we might have to expose you to a little bit of this slowly. It might be like a one that's a small trip, right? And then it might be like a longer trip later on, but it's almost that exposure to the thing that you, you can't tolerate. Is that, yeah. does that make sense, Anna? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think what Anna was saying about the control that the child um, is so important and 
when children were asked about what barriers they why they wouldn't want to do exposure they talked about having control and autonomy over um, what exposures they were able to do certainly initially is really important for them to Mm. be motivated to engage in it you know rather than being told Mm. exactly what to do absolutely that collaboration with them is so important isn't it yeah we are closing down on time as anticipated we were like super chatty we could talk all night about we're such <laughs> we could talk all night we're such nerds. you put like three nerds together who love a topic and we could chat all night so we do apologize to the it's audience. a good topic it's a great topic <laughs> i love this topic let's do part two but just the three of us so we don't yeah. subject the audience <laughs> to our nerdy chatter <laughs> and we are sorry to people that we couldn't get to all your questions but hopefully some of the things we were chatting about um applies to some of these questions right yeah Yes, you know, uh, you can apply like an anxious child with sleep, like separation at night. You can absolutely do exposure therapy to that, right? Um, and so there are all sorts of different things that you can do uh, with exposure therapy. Um, but we are sorry that we couldn't get to um, to all the audience questions, but I wanted to thank them. We had so many great questions tonight, guys, didn't we? They were like really on point. Thank you so much to everyone who contributed to the Q&A box um, and there was so interesting. Um, now, just a reminder here that we've got online tools that we would love for you to check out. Of course, we've got Niggle by Kids Helpline, but of course, our favorite Cool Kids Online is there as well. It's gone, it's gone live online, right? Um, and um, actually, the Essential Network is not there anymore. We do apologize um, that it's still on the slide, but do check us out at the Black Dog Institute. Um, we're starting to do more and more things with kids, and now we've got the wonderful Gemma uh, on board. So look out for anything that she's got up and running and any research studies where you might be needing some participants or any initiatives. We'll definitely be wanting to recruit <laughs> participants. Yeah. Yes, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there are some resources to support you. Please do hop online just a little bit of a reminder as well to everyone that um our next podcast is on managing sleep challenges in adolescence i know this is like a really trending topic uh, coming out of lockdown and gosh didn't some of our sleep get a little bit disordered during that time um, when we weren't commuting and you know sleeping in and and taking zoom meetings in our pajamas and we know that this has also had quite an impact on adolescence as well but generally at this developmental stage and that's going to be on the 29th of june at 6 p.m um i don't i'm going to be in real big trouble if i don't put in the chat box the link to registration so do bear with me maybe we'll end on a few things um whilst i'm popping the link on the chat box anna and Gemma, can we like provide one message, like one parting message to our audience in terms of maybe tips or encouragement for people doing exposure therapy in their, in their CBT for, for kids with childhood anxiety disorders. Maybe Anna, you could go first. I'd just like to say that, you know, I think that exposure therapy is so, so powerful. And I know that a lot of people fear that it's going to threaten the therapeutic relationship but my experience has been that it strengthens the therapeutic relationship my experience is that once children see the change that they're making in their families do they trust you more as a therapist and it's amazing I have had have clients come back in adulthood telling me I was really thankful when I was 13 and we did this and you know I just think that it you can see such dramatic changes in a short space of time that it's an amazing technique to use and it's lots of fun to use with kids too. 
Absolutely. Gemma, what about you? I'm going to completely agree with that. That was, that was going to be my, my thing. It's just the importance of, of exposure um, as, uh, a, as a really effective therapeutic tool. And to also say completely understandable that there's concerns around um, therapeutic relationship and dropout. But the research also shows that that's not the case. And actually attrition is lower in exposure-based treatments um, for OCD, which I realize isn't an anxiety disorder, but <laughs> it used to be um, compared with other active treatments such as relaxation, relaxation therapy. So, and I think it comes back to that there's that if there's change, parents are more likely to want to stay in treatment or their child is and, and it's, it's just more motivating. Mm. I might end with like a very short story on doing exposure therapy on my own daughter. I'm allowed to disclose because she's not my client. So there's no confidentiality there. Um, she was really afraid of hopping into the shower after like getting cuts on her legs. And when you're little, you know, you've got scrapes and things like that. And she screamed so much that like we couldn't, like my husband couldn't get her into a shower so we would do it really slowly and gradually um and then I'd be like and see nothing bad happens right and then eventually she was able to do it I remember this moment where I said to her I was trying to link up the cognition you thought it was going to be really bad and then you know it didn't happen and then she went blah 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 all you psychologists do is talk talk, talk. <laughs> after it ended so Gemma I want to point to the 25 percent of the, only 25 percent yeah. people remember doing CBT I think they get CBT sometimes they don't remember they it's like my, remember. my daughter yeah. blah no, blah just, blah all you blah. do is talk right it's noise. <laughs> but I'm doing exposure therapy is evidence-based, I said to her. So I think it's I so much fun. They don't yeah. care. <laughs> but it's actually seeing this improved functioning at the end. You know, yes. a child that couldn't go to school, attending school, a child that used to stand back and not be able to even hop on to play soccer, now being really great and enjoying their weekends, right, and making friends and having all their social support. It makes such a difference when exposure yes. therapy is um, effective. So hopefully we've been able to um, help you think about exposure therapy tonight and the strategies that you can use clinically and also thanks to Gemma as well right bump up your confidence with all that research evidence behind you um, <laughs> that you know this this does work and if you're curious about it or you're you know don't have that confidence absolutely that advice right Gemma which is get some supervision you know from experienced psychologists and that can really help it it just gives you that confidence to be able to do it in session um, thank you everyone for joining us um, lovely to see you all I hope to see you at the next uh, podcast just a really big thank you to Anna and Gemma um, and we definitely have to organize again so we can have like a, a, another big sesh of just talking about childhood anxiety disorders <laughs> thanks for having me thanks, it's everyone. been great yeah thank you it's been really fun okay bye guys have a good night thank you for listening if you'd like to hear more of our podcasts subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.